we will be looking for the next few weeks uh, at this concept of the church. What is the church about? What are the things which characterize it? Uh, How do you know if you are in a church or if you should get a different one? (laughs) Um, And... um, and what we've said is that the, the church is characterized by three marks and three essential works. The three essential marks are orthodoxy, ordinances, and order. And the three works are evangelism, edification, and exaltation. Um, in other words, the church must be characterized by faithfulness to what the Scripture teaches by the organization that the Scripture lays out, and by the practice of certain ceremonies which Jesus commanded be practiced, communion and baptism. Now, we practiced communion this morning. We baptized people a few weeks ago. Um, These are important ordinances, things that are commanded by God that we practice and participate in. There are also certain works that need to be there. We need to be about sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it. Evangelism. Uh, Encompassed in that is obviously the whole concept of evangelism is meant to go out to the entire globe. If you have not heard anything or don't know very much about the ministry that we are doing as a church and that we have worked with the consortium of free churches to do in Indonesia, you need to be at that potluck on Thursday night and hear about that because it's some amazing ministry opportunities. I hope you'll come on Sunday uh, for Sunday school next week and hear about the Congo and the things that God is doing there. He is unleashing the power of his word among those pastors in the Congo, and it's exciting. Uh, Also, uh, edification. In other words, the idea of building one another up in the body of Christ. That assumes that you are part of a body of Christ, but also that you are utilizing your gifts to help other people come to maturity, but also that you yourself are coming to maturity as as the church makes disciples. And then the idea of exaltation. This is what we've been doing up to now, of worshiping, and exalting Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that some more through the Word, and through prayer, and through some more singing here in just a little bit. But the idea of the fact that we exalt, and we lift up, and we proclaim Christ as Lord is an important aspect of what it means to be a church. And a church that doesn't lift up Jesus is not a church. A church that doesn't build people up into maturity in Christ is not a church. A church that never shares the gospel with people is something, but it's not a church. A church that departs from the faith is not a church anymore. They might have a name that they're a church, but they're not a church. A church which is not organized according to the scriptural pattern is not a church in an important way. A church which never practices baptism and communion is not a church. There's something deeply wrong if any of these elements is missing. Uh, We live in a world that probably the best word that I can come up with to describe it is the word chaotic. Um, People, no one knows, there's nothing nailed down for anybody anymore. 
Everything seems to be up for grabs, or as the poet said, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Uh, That's William Butler Yeats from about 1920, writing after World War I, but it applies today. Amen? Just as much as 95 years ago, it applies today. That anarchy is loose on the world. And as a culture, we no longer have any cohesive set of beliefs. And some people who even call themselves Christians are into what is best described as a self-created, choose-your-own-adventure kind of religion. And, you know, you've probably met some of these people. You, you run into them occasionally, and they say things like this. Well, you know, I'm kind of really into Jesus. Not so much into the institutional church so much. But, you know, I mean, like, I go out in the field, and I pray, and I talk to God there, and that's really kind of my thing. Is that what Jesus meant? Is that what he intended for people to do as they come into relationship with him? I would submit to you, in fact, that it's not. And that to do that is to ignore giant chunks of the New Testament, including every place where it says, Paul and Silas to the church at wherever, okay? Or John to the church at this place. Or Peter to the church who's scattered across Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, etc., right? These letters are written to people who are members of identifiable communities. And part of those identifiable communities is having a structure and an order to them. And if you take seriously what the Bible says about the church, you've got to take seriously what the Bible says about how it should be organized. And the first thing I want to look at there has to do with who is in charge. Who's in charge? This is the most important question you can answer. And by the way, it's not the elders. It's Jesus. Christ is head of the church. So if you've got your Bible, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says this. And he, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, I love Colossians, and someday I'll, I'll preach that, that whole book. But here's what you need to know about it for now. The book of Colossians uh, was written to a church that's struggling against a variety of heretical teachings about both Jesus as well as the nature of the Christian life. And Paul wrote to them to lay out the truth. And right at the heart of it is chapter 1, as Paul is laying out all of the things which, uh, over which Jesus is supreme. And right at the heart of that is verse 18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church, meaning that he is the ruler and authority over the church and the person whom the church follows and obeys. Well, how did Jesus get that position? Very simple. He is the founder. He is the beginning. How did he become the founder? By becoming the firstborn from among the dead. 
In other words, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was the act by which he brought the church into existence. Because as Jesus had new life in himself, also he is able to offer new life to those who follow and obey and submit to him and put their faith and trust in him. Uh, When he is the firstborn from the dead means that Jesus, with his resurrection, revealed his identity as Savior and Messiah and as the God who grants eternal life to those who are members of his body, the church. Let me tell you why that matters and why I'm emphasizing this. It matters because too many times in the church we forget who is really in charge. It's not the pastor, lest anyone be confused. It's not the elders, lest anyone be confused. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is the head of the body, which means that everything else is just what? Body. Now, the elders are given authority to lead the church, and the church is supposed to submit to and follow those authorities that they are given, but ultimately... The big dog is Jesus, and there isn't another one. He is, according to uh, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, the chief shepherd, or you might translate that differently, senior pastor. Not the guy standing up here preaching, okay? I might have the title on my door, but ultimately, Jesus is senior pastor of this church and every other one. And we need to remember that because I've seen lots and lots of people leave churches because they don't want to obey and follow what Jesus, the senior pastor, says. Not because of what their pastor says or what the elders say, but because they simply don't want to submit to and follow what Jesus says. But here's the thing. He is the head of the body. And we who are members of it need to fall in line behind him. Amen? He is the head of the body. And so if he is the head, then we all have the privilege and responsibility to follow him. Now, there are two other kinds of leaders that serve in the church under Jesus' authority. Um, There are elders or overseers, or if you like the term bishop, you can go with that one. Okay? Okay. they get it from the, uh, the word here in 1 Timothy 3 that we're going to look at, an episcopos, okay, an overseer, one who looks over other people, watches over them. Uh, you like those terms? They're all interchangeable. By the way, they're all also interchangeable with the word pastor or shepherd. To be an elder is to be a pastor. To be a pastor is to be an elder, according to the Bible, Okay. So the job description, wherever you see uh, something where it says, pastors do this, uh, if you're an elder, take note, all right? That's for you too. It's not just the guy who has the title pastor. It's also for every one of us who serves as an elder. Okay, so we want to look at the job description uh, and the qualifications of elders and deacons and see what the Scripture says about them, what kind of people are to fill these roles. 
So if you've got your Bible, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13, I want to read this for you. Um, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he will become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, If you look at the qualifications closely, you'll see that on the one hand, this is a high standard. But on the other, it's a standard that almost every mature Christian ought to be able to meet. It's a standard of life that is much better than what you will find among people in the world, but which should characterize God's people with the sole exception of the elder's teaching, which has more to do with a gift given by the Spirit than simple basic godliness like the others. In fact, if you look closely at the description of elders and deacons, there are only two primary differences just two. One is that the elders are those who are able to teach, and that's the, the description of deacons says nothing about that. And number two, that deacons can include women as well. And we'll get into that in just a minute. I'll address uh, verse 11. But the elders are exclusively men because God has entrusted men with the responsibility of having the church's teaching authority just as he entrusted men with primary responsibility and accountability before him for their families. Now, if you look at the characteristics here for elders, or as the ESV reads it, uh, overseers, the first one, believe it or not, is desire for the job. That, in other words, this is not something that people ought to have to go begging you to do. That this is something you ought to want to do. Because after all, it's a, according to the scriptures, noble task. In other words, this isn't a grunt job. This isn't isn't drudge work. This is something that is a privilege and a blessing and a high calling that you ought to desire to do. There ought to burn within your heart a desire and an aspiration to be one of the men who does this if you are a man. That ought to be there. 
And sometimes people act like wanting to be a leader is a disqualification for leadership, but not according to the Bible. That if you desire to be an elder, that that's a good desire, something God affirms. Uh, Also, not to beat a dead horse, but notice this, because some people miss it. All of the pronouns in the passage that describe elders are masculine pronouns. It's all he and his for seven verses. Okay? These are men. And it's not because, by the way, that ladies are not smart or wise or gifted or spiritual or anything to do with that. It has to do with the divine order that God has created both in the home and in the church the idea that men lead and the ladies follow. I didn't come up with that. Don't send me hate email or anything like that, okay? I won't answer you anyway. Okay, that's God's idea, and I'm going to line up with him. Um, If you look at the actual characteristics, uh, there are 14 other characteristics that are listed for a total of about 16. Uh, The elder has to attain all of these if he's going to turn his aspiration into qualification. So let me summarize. I'm not going to go, we don't have time to go through every one of them individually, but let me just summarize. An elder is a time-tested, humble, proven, patient, mature, godly, holy, faithful, and admirable man who leads his family well and has a proven ability to make disciples with his teaching. That's what an elder is. It's a high standard and a high calling of of men to mature, godly, Christian leadership. And yet it's an attainable goal for virtually every Christian man with a teaching gift who applies himself to grow in Christ and to forsake sin. Now, let me give you briefly what the New Testament gives as the responsibilities of the men who qualify as elders. Uh, Sarah, I think you've got another slide there. There you go. Here's an elder's job description. Okay? You want to know what it is? This is it. According to the Bible, lead the church. There to be leaders under the authority of Jesus Christ. So as they follow Jesus, they are to lead. Uh, They're to teach and preach the word. They're to make disciples. Remember? Uh, Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, Make disciples. The things you've heard me say to reliable men and trust to others who are able to teach others also, right? Make disciples. Elders make disciples. Protect the church from false teachers and false teaching. In other words, uh, I heard one guy describe that as the, the elder's job is to shoot the wolves who might be among the flock, who might be trying to come in from outside the flock and to say that is heretical that is wrong. We're not going to go that direction. To protect the church from false teaching and false teachers. To visit the sick and to pray. Are any of you sick? Call the elders. Pray. Right? And if he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, right? Call the elders if you're sick. We'll show up. 
and we'll pray over you. Uh, to judge doctrinal issues. In other words, there are disputes that sometimes come up from time to time. Which Is this right or is this right? Well, the elders are the men who are to have the answers to those kinds of questions. And also evangelize the lost. Everybody is supposed to share the gospel with the lost, but the elders are the men who should be setting the example for everyone else in doing that. Amen? Every elder ought to have current day stories of, of sharing the gospel with someone, someone on a regular basis. Right? Worse to be about that. To be about the task of of leading the church in sharing the gospel and setting the example for the church in all things. Now, if you look at verse uh, 8 to 13, the qualifications for deacon and deaconesses, uh, what you'll, what, you may not know this, but the term deacon originally referred to someone who was a servant. It was just a secular term. But it was someone who was a servant whose job was to wait it on people while they ate. And it got imported into the, the New Testament church because right around the time the early church was getting going, there were a bunch of widows that needed to be served um, that didn't have a way to, to take care of themselves. And they appointed some guys within the church to be the servants who handed out the food to the widows. And they said, you're going to be a deacon. And later on, there were... They were tasked to do many other kinds of service, but the principle is the same, that the deacons are those who take care of people's and their physical needs to free up the elders' time for teaching and prayer and their other ministries. Uh, for time's sake, I'm not going to examine every one of the characteristics of deacons, but to summarize, deacons are tested, mature, holy, solid believers in Christ, who bless the church by leading with gifts of service in various capacities. They aren't necessarily authoritative teachers like elders, but they are dedicated, qualified servants who are faithful in meeting people's needs in various areas. And once again, the proving for this, the proof of, that's in the pudding on it, whether somebody is qualified to be a deacon is this. What is their life like at home? Because just let me tell you something, guys. Those of you who are men, I'm going to beat on the men for a minute. Okay? If your faith does not work at your house, it doesn't work anywhere. If your faith is not working itself out in your relationship with your wife and your kids, you need to grow up a whole lot. Because this is the proving ground and the testing ground. Your first ministry, I had a professor in seminary who told us, beat this into our skulls about every other day when we would be in class with him. He said, gentlemen, never, ever, ever, ever forget this. And I haven't. 20 years later, I still remember, okay, John Hanna beating on us and saying to us, men, your first ministry is with your wife and your family. And if God blesses you such that you have another ministry, that's great. But your first one, you've got to be faithful to. And he told us, you guys, there are some of you who are going to walk across that stage and you're going to get your diploma in one hand and divorce papers from your wife in the other. And guess what? 
the one cancels out the other. You've got to prove your faith with those who know you best and see you up close. Because if it works there, it'll work in the larger family that is the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? And if it doesn't work there, let's not export it and spread it out (laughs) to everybody else. All right? Now, a lot of you are probably wondering about verse 11. You heard me say deacons can include women or deaconesses, but the ESV here reads wives, and you might be wondering about that. A couple quick responses. First of all, there is no word in Greek that means wife. There's just a generic word that means woman, uh, gyne, okay? You may, ladies, know what that is related to, okay? Has to do with woman, um, and, and so the context determines if you mean woman in general or wife specifically. And there's also no possessive uh, pronoun there uh, in the original Greek text. It doesn't read there, it reads the. And so their wives is interpretive on the part of the translator, at least at the ESV there, Um, I think it makes more sense as women because it's in the middle of a section on deacons and it occurs before the mention of these deacons' families. And so I think it's an aside that he's like, okay, and also the women who are serving as deacons, they need to be like this. And then he goes back to the men and he says, now, men, these are some additional qualifications. Uh, conservative Bible teachers come down on both sides, but I agree with where our church comes down and where I think the text is best understood that this refers to deaconesses, and they also have to meet high standards. They should be the sort of women, to summarize it, who everybody admires, whom everyone looks up to rather than down on. They should be wise women of deep faith and careful discernment, women who are reliable in ministry and with a firm grip on their tongue. This is the only place that it mentions the tongue. I I whacked on the men earlier. I'll whack on the ladies now. All right. The word slander there in the text, it says uh, not slanderers. The word slander there is the word diabolos. You took Spanish, you know who that is. That's the devil. Okay. If you're a slanderer, you are acting like Satan. You've got to keep a firm grip on your tongue. Uh, men are prone to that too. Women can be prone to that. And he says, deaconesses, you can't do that. You've got to have a firm grip on your tongue. Now, I've been attempting this morning to elevate the role of elders and deacons and deaconesses and to highlight the importance of godly character as we all serve the body of Christ who is the head. But I, I, I sometimes for, think that we forget how ordinary, really, these characteristics ought to be in the body of Christ. These are not superhuman people. This is not just, you know, it's not just for the really godly among us like Mark Swanson, you know. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, is not, this is ordinary Christians. 
This is ordinary Christians ought to be like this. The general run of people who have known the Lord for a while ought to look just like this. There ought not be a shortage of men and women who meet the qualifications of deacon and deaconess. And among men, every man with the gift of teaching and leadership should absolutely aspire to be an elder. It ought to be something that they're going, you know, not quite ready yet. Someday soon, I'm going to be ready. And I'm going to do what I can to get ready right now for the day that that's coming. These should not be jobs that require lowered standards just to get people in a role. I've been in churches like that. They're like, well, we don't really have enough qualified elders, but, you know, we, uh, we got a, the Constitution of the church says we got to have seven, so we went and we got seven guys. Is that what the Bible says here? No. But at the same time, there shouldn't be a shortage of those kind of capable leaders, both men and women. We should all be striving toward the kind of maturity and holiness and of lives lived above reproach. You want to summarize in two words what all this is about? It's about having leaders who are above reproach. Who nothing sticks to because everybody knows them to be men and women of honor, integrity, holiness, and godliness. We are not called as Christians simply to be weird in the midst of our culture. Some people act like that sometimes, like to be a Christian is to be really odd, right? No, we're not called to be weird. We're called to be, stick out because we are better than everybody else. Amen? So here's some questions to answer in your own heart here this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer here in just a second. Number one, am I obedient to Jesus as head of the church and ruler over my life? Scripture says Jesus Christ is head of the church. Do I acknowledge him and follow him as such in my own life? If I'm an elder, who are my disciples? To whom can I point as people I have taught and before whom I have modeled Christian maturity and growth? You know, to be a leader means to necessarily that you have people who are following. Amen? So, good question for all of us elders to, out here to ask ourselves is who is following the leadership that I'm giving? If I'm a deacon or a deaconess, who am I serving in the body of Christ? The whole idea is that if you're a deacon or a deaconess, that you're a servant. So who are, who are the people you're serving? As I look at this list of qualities, how well do I measure up to the standard of each one? Another question. If the church made a list of potential elders and deacons and deaconesses, would your name come to mind? We got together all the membership and we, we said, you know, the elders would like some input here on who should be our leaders. 
Who would you nominate? Would people nominate you? And if not, why not? Do I aspire to godliness and to church leadership? Or do I have a lower goal of simply living roughly the same level of maturity as my friends? What sins do I need to repent and forsake and be healed from that I might qualify to be a leader? Last question. How could I be preparing right now to be more greatly used by the Lord in the future? Maybe as you look at your life, you go, you know what, I'm just 25 years old. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not ready to take on a leadership role in the church right now, but I want to be. This preparation process that takes place, it needs to take place for that to happen. What steps can you take today? Or maybe you're 52 years old, and you go, you know, I got the following sins I really need to deal with before I would remotely qualify for this kind of a role. What's stopping you from dealing with those today? As Mark said, today is the day. Amen? Today is the day. Today is the day for, for us to look at the Scriptures as the mirror reflecting back on us and if we experience a moment of conviction from the Spirit to say to Him, I am sorry. I confess. I was wrong. I need forgiveness and cleansing and to turn a different direction and to go another way. Every day we have new mercies from the Son of God to, to pursue a new pathway. Amen? So if, if, if what I've been saying has made you feel convicted, I'm not sorry about that. In fact, I'm grateful for that. It means that the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God, is doing His work, inviting you into closer relationship with God as you leave behind what hinders you from it. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that this church would be full of godly, maturing, holy, time-tested servant leaders. And that we would have trouble whittling it down to a manageable number who can go to a meeting more than we would have trouble finding qualified people. Father, you have been faithful to always raise up godly men and women whenever they are needed. And my prayer, Father, would be that right now, beginning today, you would be stirring among your people to raise up even more. That they would shine like lights in a dark day. And that this church might do even greater things in the future than it has ever done in the past. Not for our glory, Father, but for yours. And for the salvation of a corrupt and dying generation. And Father, we pray all these things 
in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.